Welcome to episode 56, Trauma, the Silent Partner in Addiction, by Gina Tabrizi, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist, from Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello, this is Gina Tabrizi, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Let me spell that for you. T as in Tom, A, B as in boy, R, I, Z as in zebra, Y as in yellow. I'm so excited to be doing this podcast for you today and speaking on something that's truly near and dear to my heart. I've been in the field for over 33 years and my expertise has been in trauma, addiction, and codependency, all of these interwoven aspects aspects and aspects of ourselves and disorders that we deal with and of course natural stress strife of life that could activate any one of these disorders so I'm hoping today to kind of give you an overview of what I treat and how I treat it and just looking through the lens of trauma as it interrelates to addiction and so I call this talk trauma, the silent partner in addiction, so that you know that that's where we're headed, and I hope you'll join me on this journey today. So, and at the end, I'll try to remember to give you some info regarding myself and how to contact me for comments and questions, and I'm so grateful to the team that's allowed me to be here today to present for you, and I hope you all enjoy it. So, hang on, and let's go for this ride, okay? So trauma, the silent partner of addiction, the very first thing that I have on my screen is a song by Evanescence, and those of you that are music fans, um, you can look it up, but it's called Bring Me to Life. And the reason I always play this normally when I'm doing this talk live is to give you a beautiful definition of trauma to understand trauma from the depths of trauma from the people that experience it. And so I'm just going to read you the lyrics. I promise I'm not going to sing because it is not in my wheelhouse to do so. And you would all probably cut off right at that point. So lyrics for you. The beginning is, how can you see into my eyes like open doors, leading you down into my core where I've become so numb? Without a soul my spirits sleeping somewhere cold until you find it there and lead it back home. And then the chorus is, wake me up, wake me up inside. I can't wake up, wake me up inside, save me. Call my name and save me from the dark. Wake me up, bid my blood to run. I can't wake up before I come undone. Save me, save me from the nothing I've become. I really encourage you to find that and to listen to it. It's even more powerful when uh, you hear the lyrics and, and the woman who's singing, whose name I forget, but she's phenomenal. Because the words run so deep, it continues, now that I know what I'm without, you can't just leave me. Breathe into me and make me real. Bring me to life. I love the description of this because it's showing you the horror of being trapped in something so dark where you feel so numb, so cold, so lost 
lost and so far away from anything that you recognize as home. And truly, that is a beautiful definition of trauma, and it is an equally beautiful definition of addiction, if you've never thought of it in that way. And a genaism, something that I've coined, is that addiction is trauma. If you've never had trauma, but you have addiction, you now know trauma. And so this allows you to understand the pain that somebody's in. And it also, to me, gives the sense of desperation when someone comes to treatment seeking help. This is what it's like. Their soul has left them and they feel empty and they're looking to you to wake them up. So this is an invitation. I think in this work that I do and in the work that I'm encouraging you to do, those of you that are going to be working with trauma or those who are healing from trauma is you need to come with it guns blazing with everything that you have. 100% you as the clinician or you as the client or patient needs to show up willing to give everything you have so that you can wake up inside and revive that death that comes from being a survivor of trauma, the spiritual death, and the same death that comes from addiction. Now, if we look at the DSM definition of it, it's a little different. So the DSM has very specific criteria. Those of you that are not familiar, it's the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, and this is what therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists use to reference when we are diagnosing people with certain disorders. And so the definition of post-traumatic stress disorder has many criteria, but the first one is the person was exposed to death, threatened death, actual or threatened serious injury, or actual or threatened sexual violence. The next criteria, the traumatic event is persistently re-experienced. And the next criteria, persistent effortful avoidance of distressing trauma-related stimuli after the event. So they're saying you relive it over and over again. And those of you who have had trauma, you understand this. The memory keeps coming back, and it's very much alive in you when it repeats itself. And then it persistently you are avoiding, you're trying to get away from things that might stimulate. So I remember having a client once who had a sexual trauma when she was younger and it was on a um, green uh, floor or a green like carpet or blanket, something of this nature. So that that color stayed with her and it was so vibrant to her that whenever she saw that same very vibrant green color, it triggered that fight, flight, or freeze, that um, neuropathic response that we have from our nervous system when we're in danger. It says, get out of here, run, or it says, stay, I can't move, I'm frozen in time, or fight, you know, guns blazing, fist pumping, try to hit and fight and, and get away from the situation. And so this poor woman, the first time she came to therapy, I happened to have a green carpet. So I can tell you that we had relived that experience together. And so 
these are some of the defining things. There's also nightmares and night terrors that people have. They have an arousal system. Like I said, fight, flight, or freeze that is hyper vigilant. You are hypersensitive to your environment and your arousal is very much awakened and alive. And you're in a constant state of alert. Um, a significant symptom related to stress or it causes functional impairment in you is another criteria. Now, this makes sense. And if you think of war veterans where the coin, we coined this term originally, post-traumatic stress, yes. I mean, having to be in a war zone with bombs and guns going off, constant overstimulation of the mind and of the brain, and then watching someone you adore or love, your buddy, your comrade in arms right next to you, and you watch them die in a brutal and horrific way. This is a trauma. It is real. It is no question something that's going to impact you throughout your life. But I want you to open up to the possibility of a different kind of trauma. And I guess for me, it's a definition that I heard that was coined um, from the Meadows. It's a treatment center in Wickenburg, I believe, Arizona. And I've referred many patients there because their expertise is in trauma. And they have Pia Melody there who's written many books and is, is a spectacular human being that's helped this field quite a bit. So there's a plug for Pia if she's listening. So I want to say to you the definition that she had coined that I heard over and over again was anything less than nurturing. And so anything less than nurturing means anything. It's, it's all encompassing. And so all of us then can probably think of anything less than nurturing, that we've had a circumstance, we've had a situation where we felt we weren't nurtured or we were abandoned or our needs weren't met. I like to say when our basic needs are not met, that's another form of trauma. No shelter, food, water. But then there's the emotional needs that are even more powerful. And those emotional needs are the need to be regarded, to be loved unconditionally, the need to be accepted, the need to be seen, the need to be heard, the need to be cherished, the need to be loved. And so there's many other basic emotional needs that humans have that when they are not met can cause an experience very similar to trauma where a part of their personality and a part of themselves never fully develops in a healthy way due to this empty place in them where the need didn't get met. So I want you to open up to the possibility of that different definition. And another really painful um, experience of trauma that we can define it is witnessing. So witnessing someone else's trauma is unlike anything else. And of course, we know witnessing uh, catastrophic events and earthquakes and use hurricanes and the flooding that's going on all over the place right now. We know these things to be traumatic. It's life-changing and altering. And of course, there is impending doom that's coming your way. Well, when you're witnessing someone else being abused or beaten or battered, sexually assaulted, you see and experience the impending doom. You feel like it's coming for me. I'm next. I'm not safe. And so you experience the same symptoms that the survivor experiences. 
But oftentimes, these are the people that minimize and say, well, at least I wasn't molested. Well, it didn't happen to me. So when they have PTSD symptoms, they will constantly push them down and minimize them. And that is so painful because it's hard then as the clinician to work with someone that keeps minimizing and rationalizing their painful story away. As long as you're human and you experience trauma vicariously by witnessing, which is something that happens to many therapists and that gets minimized, and or by in vivo living it happening to you, this is real and this will impact you in your life, in your development. And it is so important. If you don't take anything away from this, I want you to know this. When we treat trauma, it is to know that what we are dealing with is the underlying cause of so many psychological issues, so many mental health issues, including addiction, besides the biological component, predisposition component to addiction, you have this psychological underpinning of having experiences like these, which leave all of you that have experienced any kind of trauma growing up, whether it was an alcoholic home or abusive, physical, emotional, spiritually abusive, or sexually abusive home, then you are at exposed. You're at exposure to increase the likelihood that you would use substances as a way of coping. Now, some of the trauma symptoms that you're going to see and notice in someone that's coming in for help is they're very flat in their presentation, almost numb and almost careless, but not in a carefree way, but in a detached way, like nothing seems to really affect them. They don't feel joy equally as much as they don't express sadness. And they're very guarded for sure. And the hypervigilance that I mentioned earlier, looking over your shoulder, when you hear a sound, you react very strongly and you're always scanning your environment to know that you're safe. And it's a very shame-based experience trauma so therefore there's a lot of shame in the dialogue I'm not worth it I'm a horrible person I don't deserve so when you notice that kind of referencing to oneself and then there's the emotional flooding that can happen where someone is just overwhelmed emotionally that everything they are so very sensitive to all dysregulation in their life and so having an argument or something basic that you and I might go through the day and go well I'm kind of disappointed but this person will experience as an extreme loss and sense of loss of themselves and will be flooded with emotion or they will equally be detached. So hopefully you're following along with those and maybe writing those down or maybe just checking in with yourself to, to see if you're experiencing any of those things. Something that I think is really powerful with trauma is that we feel it in every cell and now there's so many studies that say that we do retain things on a cellular level. We are pure, pure cells chemistry, all mixed together that create this magnificent human being's body and anatomy that we carry. And we are so sensitive and the skin um, feels everything and takes everything into the cells so that it can be recorded in your brain as a memory, basically. So when you're abused in any way, you feel it in every cell of your body. And when some somebody feels it, 
in that way, their body records it, then the body remembers what the mind does not. So oftentimes clients will come into therapy and they'll say, I don't remember. I just have this feeling something happened to me. Sometimes they're very specific. I feel like I was sexually violated and I have no memory of it. I have no recall of it. They will also add to that oftentimes. I don't have any memory from X age to Z age, like maybe say from seven down, you know, or five down or 13 down, big chunks of time in their life, which often is a sign that they've blocked something out. So their body, however, does it very differently and it continues to record that experience. So this is a way to work with the client and them understanding that they don't need to know. You don't need to know right now. Just pay attention to that emotional and that cellular experience that you're having that's trying to tell you something that's trying to tell you a story trauma teaches a person to go in the reverse of what's natural what i mean by that is and this is something that i that i've taught for many many years is we are naturally drawn towards each other to be loved to exceed to receive love, excuse me, to be validated, to be accepted. But someone who experiences trauma, when you're being kind and loving towards them and coming to them with authenticity, they don't trust it. They don't believe it and they back up from it. So it's very difficult for trauma survivors in particular to then have relationship because in their relationships, what they experience is distrust I was violated, I was abandoned, I was hit, I was abused by people that I loved and people who were my caregivers that were supposed to love me or best friends or my neighbors or my uncles or whoever it might be, they experienced the ultimate betrayal and violation. So to say to them, oh, you should just trust me is nonsensical. Like, oh, really, I should just trust you because I trusted my parents and they beat me you know, black and blue, or they abandoned me, or they ignored me, or they sexually violated me, and whoever those loved ones are for them. So a person who has an experience of trauma, when you try to be kind, loving, and get close to them, it is very, very difficult, and they are always going to want to walk away and back up and look at you in that distrust. And it takes a very long time as a clinician even to build that trust with a client who's come into therapy asking for your help, still doesn't believe that you're being genuine in the care and the kindness that you're showing them. They resist change greatly. Change has such an impact on their psyche because they need to control things and if things are changing and moving and different then they're not in control and it's like taking the footing out from a trauma survivor and also for them they resist love they resist help and they resist kindness it's like nails on a chalkboard so if you're noticing that within yourself just acknowledge it and let yourself know that you know what I'm okay this is a protection this is something that I built to protect myself from further harm and just like I learned it I can unlearn it it is always possible to unlearn that experience of rejecting what is so natural as a human now relationships are another indicator of hidden trauma when someone has a constant pattern in relationship where they choose partners who are abusive who ignore who cheat on them who are untreated alcoholics or addicts 
who abandon them, et cetera, et cetera, these relationships then become an indicator that someone probably has a history of trauma because you relive what you learned. So if you learned growing up that you weren't worth it because you had an abusive person in your life who was your caregiver and you felt and internalized that sense of worthlessness, then you repeat that. In relationship, you find people that are going to prove to you that you don't matter and that you are not worth it. And you'll keep drawing to these people and you'll keep choosing the same kind of person over and over again until you look at and discover and explore and relieve and heal that hidden trauma, okay? So pay attention to that, especially in relationship, because that is a great indicator for you that something has gone awry in your in your life and that maybe you need to take a step back and a look back at your history and where you come from. Now, trauma is, as I said earlier, is addiction and addiction is trauma. So if you're an addict, you're experiencing trauma on a daily basis you know it's the things you're willing to do for your dope the places you're willing to go the people that you're willing to be with and the self-loathing and the self-hatred and the self-harm that you inflict when you're doing substances is the same as a perpetrator who's violating you so this is what addiction does it violates you and so a precursor to addiction is emotional trauma and one thing you can notice in people is a deep sense of depression, just like the song in the beginning, as I described it in Evanescence, that feeling of being a lost soul and lost in the depth of this numb place where you just want to wake up from. That is what addiction looks like. And so addicts sometimes will come, not sometimes, will often present with depression and anxiety before they will ever admit or say to you that they might have a problem with substances. The substances is the thing they're going to hang on to the longest because it's their best coping mechanism. It's the one thing that they can count on that they know is always going to be there for them and makes them feel in this strange way that they are in control, but also it's their best friend because it takes away the pain for the time that it does until it doesn't. But it does it for a long enough time that they become addicted. So when someone's needs are not met, addiction will develop there as well. And addictions fill the void that the trauma created. So when someone has that trauma and they have that soul injury, addiction can fill up that soul. And it's any kind of addiction. It's drugs and alcohol and sex and um, shopping and gambling and uh, obsessive internet game playing or porn watching. There's so many ways that someone in addiction is desperately seeking to fill the void and to fill the space that trauma left Now, codependency is another way, and that's the relationship I'm talking about, the relationships where you keep choosing ones that are unhealthy for you. Codependency can recreate the trauma or avoid it. So you could be the person who in the relationship becomes more of the perpetrator, who's the one who's controlling and dominating another human and expecting and making them to be a certain way with you so that you can stay in control. Or you could be the submissive person in the codependency triangle, not triangle dyad, where 
you are submitting yourself completely and fully to another human because you believe you can't live without them. And they are the thing that's filling the hole. The same hole of the addict is being filled by another human when you're the codependent. So the definition of codependency is anyone who's dependent on a person who's dependent on substances. So you became addicted to them while they were becoming addicted to drugs and alcohol. And so if you didn't know that and you're just discovering that for yourself, this is a relational issue and it's something that lets you know that you probably have some underlying trauma. Now, trauma and addiction itself. People will self-soothe the way that they did as children. So what I mean by that is when you were a child, so I always remember this one client who would tell the story that when she was very young, she was sexually abused by, I believe it was her sibling. And she said that instinctually when the abuse would end, she would run to the refrigerator in her kitchen and she remembers getting a char of, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, so forgive me, Mendocino or Mendocino, Mendocino cherries. It's those cherries that they put on top of the um, Shirley Temple drinks or some other kind of drinks. That's the only one I know. And so, and it's, they're literally dipped in formaldehyde is what I was told. And obviously some horrific food coloring because the color just bleeds off of them. So it is so sickening, sickeningly sweet, but she would run to that refrigerator and she would drink the juice from the cherries and instinctually, this woman was soothing the inside. She was coating the inside with sweetness for the pain and the horror that she felt that she was experiencing. It was actually brilliant for her to use that as a coping mechanism. When you're stuck in trauma, addictions will increase. So addictions can perpetuate. You know, they've done so many studies where now it's like 80 to 85% of the people that are going into treatment have a trauma or some kind of trauma in their history. And women with trauma history are five times more likely to have substance use disorders and other mental health disorders as well, but primarily substance use disorders because of their trauma. Addictions numb the feelings and the memories. Of course, you would choose that as a coping skill. Of course you would. And chronic relapse is another indicator of underlying trauma. So all of those I mentioned are underlying indicators for you of trauma, those of you, you know, that are, that are not sure, you know, what do I want you to know about the role? So it is important to know this, that anytime you felt your needs weren't met or haven't been met, that that too acts as a trauma and it's okay to yourself. I feel traumatized by that. I've been hurt by that. I've been wounded by that. And that's why I keep repeating certain patterns in my relationships with people. Now, here's the thing is with trauma, because it lives in your cells, because it has a long shelf life, you have to tackle it. You, the more you ignore it, the more you suppress it, the more you push it down, the more it comes back harder, faster, stronger, and louder. So this idea that I've seen in many, many treatments throughout my life and treatment centers and residential treatment centers is, 
you know, cover it, put a plug in the jug, don't talk about it now, put it away, it's in your past. These are beautiful words, but when you say those words to a trauma survivor, you're injuring them in a different way. You're saying it's not valid, it's not real, it's not important, just pack it up, just get over it. And every trauma survivor will tell you, oh my God, how many times I've been told just get over it. There's so many wonderful ways now to work with trauma to help heal that you don't have to stay stuck in that forever. The idea is not to stay there and never leave. The idea is to heal the trauma, but you can't do that if you don't face it. The reason I tell people that I will work with trauma from the very beginning of residential treatment for drugs and alcohol, right after detox, this is extremely controversial and I'm sure we'll get a lot of comments about it, but I've been doing it for 33 years and I want to tell you every time over and over again, the common thread that clients will repeat to me is this, I've never worked on this. This has changed my life. I never knew how this impacted me and that this was causing or was at the root cause of my self-esteem, my addiction, my relationship issues. And they feel empowered when you give them a why and you give them an understanding of how these negative symptoms in their current life are intermingled with these past historical events of trauma, then now all of a sudden they're empowered. They can go, oh my God, this is why this happened. And this is in my past and I don't need to react to it. I need to honor it, acknowledge it, accept it, grieve it. And then I can move forward from it and I can tell the story of trauma and stop carrying the horrible shame that I've been carrying my whole life, keeping this terrible secret to myself. So this is a role of a therapist to help guide you, is to work through this emotional, spiritual, physical, sexual trauma with you. And here's the thing, as a clinician, as a therapist, know thyself and heal thyself. You will have blinders on when you're dealing with patients with trauma if you haven't taken a look and taken an inventory and healed those broken places inside yourself. They will become a trigger for you. And oftentimes we don't know, but then we transfer our own feelings of inadequacy onto the patient and maybe get angry or we become distant or we push away or we start pathologizing the patient as possible or difficult to deal with. I'm sorry I'm pulling our covers on this one, but this is a reality we all have to face, especially of new coming into the field, newly learning to work with trauma, if you're new to that, is to know this about yourself. And is for the patient to notice if your therapist is having really um, intense or vivid reactions to your trauma that seem out of proportion or you seem uncomfortable with, maybe there's something there to talk about. You're there to hold the space for that client. I love this term in psychology and we use it like, like crazy. We use it all the time, everywhere. But holding the space means genuinely stay present and authentic. Being mindful is an incredible skill and a tool that therapists can lean on when they're sitting in the room with horrific trauma is stay there and be safe and be authentic and be non-judgmental while you're listening to the story of that trauma. Acknowledge the trauma. Whatever it is for the patient, if you're like, well, um, 
okay, well, you know, that happened and, and now you're here and now we can move past it. Those are words that minimize, you know, and discount. So take away the little words that minimize and discount just because you don't know where to go or you don't know what to say when somebody throws out on your lap. I've never told anybody be before, but my brother raped me when I was 13 years old. I mean, that's a horrible thing to hear and to listen to, but it is the truth. One out of every three women, one out of every five men have some sexual abuse, and those are just reported cases, at least in that general vicinity, okay? So, Allow them to talk about it and you be that witness and you be that non-judgmental listener and honor and respect it and say, I know this caused you great pain because I see it in your addiction. I see it in your relationships. I see the suffering and self-loathing that you carry with you. And it's not for you to carry. Your role continues to be a listener and to not fix it. But in choosing your words very carefully, you can amplify it, you can support it, and you can speak to it in a way that helps the patient make peace with their trauma instead of stay in conflict. What happens a lot, like I said, in therapy is we want to push it down or we want to do it in a very cognitive way, writing, which is fantastic, journal writing, making lists. Um, sending letters, you know, or writing letters to perpetrators and then burning them or, or shredding them or whatever we do with that. And all of that is beautiful. But the greatest gift that you can give the client is to be the therapist that's present in the room with them, listening and recording the story and then sharing with them and reflecting back the emotional response that you do have to it because you're a human being. And so as a human being, it's painful and it's sad. So to see sadness in your face or tears well up in your eyes is you showing them the humanity of the experience of their trauma and knowing that they're not being judged in it. And also you're reflecting back to the patient a way for them to experience a mirror. You show them the sadness so that they can feel and see the sadness within themselves instead of continuing to numb and continuing to seek substances. See, here's the thing. Your goal is to get the patient to tolerate the intolerable emotions of trauma so that then they don't need to use a substance to numb or escape or run from the trauma. They'll be like, well, I just talked about it and I cried my eyes out. I bawled in my therapist's office. I, I hit a pillow. I yelled and screamed. I cried. I yelled my perpetrator's name out. And I feel better now. It's not healed. It's not fixed. It's not a one-stop shop. But for that moment, they have been relieved of the burden of carrying the shame and the numbing of the feelings of feeling dead inside. You have woken them. I wake you and I bring you back to life. Well, that's what that resuscitation looks like when you're treating a trauma survivor is to be with them, hear the story, encourage them to tell it, show them you're emotionally present with them and reflect back to them emotion and then allow them to have that and just keep telling them that they're doing amazing, that this is incredible and that you're so proud of them and you're so glad that they're sharing the story with you and that they're letting go of the pain. Something that I like to say about trauma and it's another Gina-ism like, you know, addiction is trauma is a Gina-ism is the story of healing trauma is the story of being loved. So know this, 
that when you can be in the presence of another human being who can love you, despite what trauma has created, caused you to do, uh, mistakes that you've made, paths that you've taken because of the trauma, because you were surviving it, running from it, trying to heal it, trying to fix it, trying to numb from it, to sit in the presence of someone who will love and accept you while you do that is magnificent. It is a godlike thing. It is the experience of being in a room and a space what what an unconditionally loving God should look like. And if you don't have that spiritual awakening and you don't have that spiritual belief, that's okay. Just know human to human. How have I matured, grown, evolved, and been successful in my life when I've felt loved? How much further did I get? How much more did I do and accomplish because I felt love? We are not meant to do this alone. We are meant to do this as a team. We are meant to do this as a tribe. We are meant to do this as a society. We are all meant to heal together and walk through life together. We're not meant to be these separate entities that just bounce off each other periodically and then become annoyed when we bounce off each other. And sometimes that's what the trauma survivor feels like. They feel like they're in the way. They feel like a nuisance. They feel like they're a bother because they have so much pain. So know this. Know that you can do a tremendous amount of healing just by sitting with a patient and being loving, being authentically loving in the room with them. And I mean that with my whole heart is just you being so present that your whole heart is there and present with the client and saying things like I'm saying to you that make them feel empowered and understood and heard and seen. The best technique is to be a witness. So where they were a witness for their own trauma, now you're witnessing them and you're in the room with them, which means they're no longer alone and that is such an incredible feeling for a trauma survivor. The other thing is to go through the history with them. And there's lots of ways to do this. Um, you know, most therapists like to do a timeline. That's great for all the histories of trauma. But now think about it when you're doing that timeline to say, I want you to record everything less than nurturing. Any events that stand out in your life that made you feel less than nurturing. And they will come up with things. It could be not being called on to play um, volleyball or tetherball at school. It could be a name a kid called them in class or a teacher calling them out in a negative way or making fun of something that they were wearing or a physical feature on their face. There's so many ways that we can feel anything less than nurturing that changes the way that we experience ourselves and how we talk to ourselves. So the self-talk is very important. So a technique too as a clinician is to give them the words of love and say, you are all right. You're perfect the way that you are. You were born perfect, divine, given everything that you needed. And the people that abused you along the way told you you didn't matter and you were less than and you didn't have what you needed. And so you learned that that was the truth, but it's not your truth. It was their truth. And they lied. They lied to you because absolutely you are okay and you're whole and you always were. And now we're reclaiming the parts of you that you lost when you were abused. 
And I say this, it's another Gina-ism, go back to the places where you left yourself. So every time there was a horrific event and you gave up another aspect of your person, of your personality, of your spirit, of your vibrancy, of your ability to charge and move forward and take on the day, go back there and reclaim that child. That's what inner child work is and that's one of the greatest tools you can use. Of course, along with EMDR, which has to be mentioned, but the inner child work, please look it up. There's so many gurus and, and mentors and authors around inner child work. John Bradshaw, one of my favorites, and uh, there's a self-parenting guide to inner conversations, and I'm so sorry I'm forgetting his name right now. I want to say Paul Lee, but look at that. Conversations, inner conversations, a self-parenting guide, something to that effect. So there's so many ways and so many tools, and those are some of them. Read the books on codependency. Read, uh, there's a book by Patrick Carnes, uh, Breaking Free of Exploitive Relationships. It is a classic, monumental piece to read around if you're abusing yourself in relationship. So the inner child work is about going back and reclaiming the child that was injured, that was broke. And they were broke by other people, not by you. You've done your very best to try to protect them and save them to the very best of your ability. Now go back and love and nurture them. Go back to that horrible experience at five years old and visualize yourself walking into that room and reclaiming that child that's being molested or violated. Walk in that room, have that courage, see the face of your perpetrator and say to them no more. And this is me coaching you, which is what I'm teaching you as a therapist. If you're a therapist, this is a way that you can coach your client. You can hear the passion in my voice. It's why they believe me when I say it, because I have total conviction about it, because it is the work that I've done for myself. So as a clinician, clinician, your best tool is this, to work on yourself so that you don't have blinders walking in the room with that trauma survivor. You will only take them as far as you've been willing to go, and then you will block them from further progress. So hear me doing this inner child work and saying it to you and think about if that's work you've done for yourself and allow yourself to experience that. All of the things that you think might be scary as a clinician is exactly what your client needs to know, needs to hear, needs to believe, and needs to experience in, in, in themselves. And this is a way that they're going to heal, is seeing that in you, you are the mirror to show them that healing is possible. Go reclaim that inner child. Another great piece of work to do is role reversal. So when you're sitting in the therapy room with your Patience is when they want, a lot of you have heard of gestalt and the empty chair, this is very similar to the empty chair, is have the client switch roles with the perpetrator and sit in the seat of the perpetrator. It makes them have a sense of control over them because they're not going to speak as if they were them. So even though they will be hurt, angry, disgusted, they'll have all these initial reactions like, oh, I don't want to do that, is go, I want you to know what it's like to be in charge of this moment. 
and to be in the experience of that person because this is who you're fighting and you always need to know your enemy. So know your enemy like yourself. And so they roll reverse. They sit in the seat of the perpetrator and they say all of the horrible things that were said to them. And then you have them switch roles back and they sit in their own seat and you're still present in the room with them, being the witness, being the authentic authentic loving spirit in the room and you watch them and then you have them speak to that empty chair but now they have words because the words were given to them and the words amplified them emotionally they felt the experience when they heard the words again live and you can take this it's a risk it's an opportunity Take it however you want. I'm also a psychodramatist and trained in that beautiful, beautiful experiential group therapy. So I'm very comfortable with stepping in roles with my patients. So I will, with patients that I know need the experience of a live person sitting there, I'll switch roles and I'll sit in the role of the perpetrator. Now that's very controversial, but what you're going to find out today is that I'm a very controversial person and clinician. And if you ever meet me, I got bright red hair to go along with all of that controversy because it's a good fit for me. So I want you to think about if you switch roles and you say the words, the client will then start to possibly become very agitated and angry. So you need some training in that space. So I wouldn't do it unless you feel absolute comfort and knowledge and secure in the trusting relationship with you and your client. Because what you do then is you get up out of that seat and go behind that chair and you allow the patient to have pillows if they want to hit with a pillow, if they want to use a, a, a phone book, which God knows those are so antiquated now, we probably don't even have any, but maybe magazines are still around, and have them tear the pages of the magazines when they start to feel the anger towards the perpetrator. Now you're not just liberating them of the sadness and of the shame, now you're giving them an expression for the anger. Anger is a very physical emotion. So it doesn't relieve just in words. And if it is going to be relieved in words, the words are going to be vile and they're going to be cursing. You cannot have somebody say, oh my God, you meanie poopy head dummy that you hurt me because they will not feel the relief and the impact of the words that are truly harboring inside of them and wanting to get out. So those of you that have issues around this, again, this is not for you, but this is the work that trauma requires. It's okay for your patient to curse. And if you have to model for them, you tell them, tell that guy to F off. I'm not going to do it here on the podcast live, but if you were live with me on a, a conference stage or me giving this talk, trust me, I'll dro- I drop the F-bomb. And I don't do it out of disrespect and I don't do it. I do It is kind of entertaining. That isn't my initial thought. It's because I had to work at that. I was one of those children that was taught to be seen and not heard and to be silent. And I have a very strong powerful voice. As you can hear, I can barely contain myself and my passion as I'm talking to you. And that's why I'm speaking. And so quickly, I'm also a little ADD if you didn't pick up on that. But I want to say to you that I was would have never used a curse word for fear of what, what retaliation would happen. And so the first time I did that, it was empowering to let go of that rage inside of me because rage doesn't use the language of nice. It uses the language of hurt and anger and pain. So know that. Know that when you're working with your clients, that's another 
outlet that you have for them. And here's a tool, you know, that I didn't mention earlier, but when you're doing the journaling and the inventories and you're asking them to write their story, here's the thing. When you have a patient that says, I have never been abused, I don't have anything like that. I had a perfect childhood. I had a great childhood. Ask the question differently. Don't use the word abuse. Don't use the word trauma, sexual, physical, emotional assault, because they're not even going to hear that if they're in denial around it or they've repressed it. So say, when was a time that you have been hurt and that you were hurt so deeply you felt you couldn't shake it? Wow. That's a different way to ask the same question. And because you ask it in this more innocent way, non-threatening way, it will often pop up for the patient. So I want you to notice that too. And your role is to guide them through this. They're not alone and constantly remind them. It's like you have the flashlight of the tunnel that you're walking through together. And the trauma is in the tunnel. I often use the analogy of the butterfly, which I think many, many therapists use for many different reasons. And it's because it's so magnificent and so magical and transformational is the caterpillar to, to the butterfly. And so what I say to them is, when they say, why do I need to deal with trauma now? Why do we have to talk about this? Why do you keep bringing this up? We are in the darkness, in your addiction, in your depression, in your anxiety, you are in the dark hole of the cocoon that is the caterpillar and you're stuck in there and you're trapped and you feel alone and you don't know there's a way out you don't know that there's a better way to live you don't know peace in your heart and I am the therapist guiding you I have a flashlight and I've been in that cocoon before and I know the way out. I know how to guide you through that cocoon because what I want for you is to transform and become the butterfly. I want you to be free of this addiction. I want you to be free of this horrific trauma replaying and repeating itself in your life and every relationship that shows up, your boss, your friends, your lovers, your spouses, I want this to end for you, and I know it will never end if you keep living in the dark space in the cocoon as a caterpillar. So know how significant your role can be in being with that patient, and know above all else, we cannot save anyone, we cannot cure or fix anyone, we can be present to and guide everyone that comes into our office authentically and lovingly. They will be transformed in the relationship. So the healing of trauma is the story of being loved, as I said earlier. And what it means is that it will change their life to feel you have lovingly walked them through the scariest thing that they've ever been through ever in their life. And the liberation of telling somebody and finally being free of the burden of carrying the horror that is trauma inside of them. So I hope that, I think I have a little bit of time left. I don't know how good I'm being with my time, so I'm praying that I'm, that I'm going to nail this just right. So in the couple of minutes we have left, I'm hoping that you have a sense of 
how differently I might view trauma from traditional ways of, of viewing trauma in terms of it's only a catastrophic event or a life-threatening event. I want you to understand that by calling it anything less than nurturing, you're opening the door to those people that have so much shame that they can't even tell you the story. You've now opened the door to go, oh, well, this story is okay to say because this is anything less than nurturing without even recognizing that it was sexual abuse, without even recognizing it was physical abuse, not punishment not discipline. So know that, know that this will change that variance by them having a different way to look at it. Now you open the door to really do the work and that's very, very important. It's also important for you to know when you're looking at addiction over and over and over again in a client and you haven't looked for trauma, that this is probably something that is a factor in affecting relapse. And chronic relapsers, almost always across the board when I've worked with them and we dig into the trauma is the one thing that changes the game for them is that, oh my God, it's the only thing I didn't deal with. It's the only thing I didn't look at. I have this beautiful client who's now sober many, many years and I absolutely adore him. And he came in very broken in his 20s and he had not only repeated several treatment episodes he had been in jail multiple times as well and the last time he went in he says I can never do this again or I'm gonna die and he got it to his core to his soul and when he came in to talk about it the thing he could never talk about was he finally shared that he had had an experience of being violated by a family member and it was the deepest darkest most hidden secret inside of him because in his adult life his relationship with this significant family member was good and he, he cared about him he looked up to him whatever he had you know a, a, what seemed a normal relationship but he couldn't understand this chronic underlying anger and rage that he had always had at him at him and so by acknowledging and relieving and digging up this trauma and giving it a voice and letting it go, it changed him forever. He was able to maintain sobriety for the first time ever. He was able to hold his head up. He was able to heal not only his relationship with that family member, but with other family members connected to that experience. So mom and brothers and brothers, wives, et cetera, et cetera, in that type of family dynamic. Now there's multiple healings going on because once you're not afraid to face that dragon, it's no problem to face the rhino or to face the coyote, like the other forms that the trauma might show up. And it shows up in the sense of abandonment. So besides his perpetrator, anyone else that was around, in his mind, he filed them away as someone that had abandoned him. And therefore, with this abandonment, they become a perpetrator to them. So he was really alienated from his family. And then it was a beautiful thing how he was able to come back and reclaim himself and his rightful place in that family that also had healed and was continuing on their own paths of healing and recovery, which is amazing. So just know that as the clinician, you do have the ability to sit and witness. You are the guide. You are the reflection and the mirror for the emotional reality of the patient, letting them see that it hurts when they can't see that it hurts. 
You have the flashlight to guide them through the cocoon that is trauma and the story of trauma. And you can ask them, like I said, those questions, have you ever been hurt so deeply that you couldn't shake it? And tell me a time when that's happened. And then once they tell you, validate that trauma and say that is absolutely trauma. Call it that. Give it the power and importance that it has to them because it was life-altering and it was life-threatening for them. Because not getting basic needs of emotional love, unconditional guidance, support, regard, worth, merit, joy, all of these experiences that we need as humans, that when we didn't get that from our caregivers, then that is traumatic. And the person has a soul death. They lose little parts of themselves. And so that is the same as feeling that your life is being threatened because your spiritual life is being threatened and your psychological life is being threatened. I hope that makes sense to you. And I mentioned EMDR and I mentioned psychodrama and I want you to look them up. And I want you to consider if you're using to doing CBT and DBT and all of these cognitive behavioral types of therapies that are so valuable in helping us to um, find containment and helping to keep the emotional dysregulation of trauma kind of contained and manageable, that doesn't mean it gets you to your core and that it works it through at 100% and allows you to have the type of empowerment. So sometimes it can be like putting a mini Band-Aid on it and glossing it over, and that's not the experience you want. So I'm very eclectic in that I will use CBT and DBT, but I will use psychodrama, and I will use inner child, and I will use abreactive types of therapy, and I will use music, and whatever speaks to the soul of that client that's going to wake them up is what's needed, not just containment, not just putting it in a box or putting it and tying it up with a bow or putting a Band-Aid on it. And we come from a society that wants to medicate everything. So you really have to consider if you're using tools that say, I see that and now let's reframe that thought in our mind and let's take some deep breaths so we can bring that feeling down so that we bring the feeling into a space where it no longer is overwhelming you. Yes, that's healthy because if you have to go out and go to work and be with people, but in the therapy office, that should be the one sacred space where you can let your hair down and feel everything, everything alive and vividly that you need to feel. There shouldn't be fear around needing containment in the therapy office. You can save that for the last 10 minutes of the therapy before someone's going out. You can coach them and teach them to take those tools with them, but in the room, let them Strip down raw. Let them be their raw, real, authentic selves, showing you their vulnerability and their truth and honor and love them in that truth without judgment. That is the role. That is the job of the therapist. Look up the other therapies I mentioned because those are two other podcasts. If I'm invited back, that would be amazing. Psychodrama and EMDR. Psychodrama Experiential Group Therapy. It's exploring the truth through dramatic method founded by Jacob Moreno. And then EMDR founded by Francine Shapiro, brilliant woman who invented the technique of adaptive processing. It's taking emotional dysregulation 
and, and wiping it out, basically allowing you to feel, experience trauma while talking about it, while visualizing it, and at the same time teaching your nervous system to come into a space of calm and healing. I do it with every single client and every single patient, and I encourage you, if you've never tried that and you're on the path of healing, trauma, if any therapy you want to pick up, pick up that one first. The other song I want to leave you with is Brave by Sarah Bareilles. I can never pronounce her name, so I'm sorry if I didn't say it right. And she's listening, (laughs) I wish, (laughs) or you're listening and you're a fan. You can be amazing. You can turn a phrase into a weapon or a drug. You can be the outcast or be the backlash of somebody's lack of love. Or you can start speaking up. Nothing's going to hurt you the way that words do when they settle beneath your skin, kept on the inside and no sunlight. Sometimes a shadow wins. But I wonder, I wonder what would happen if you would be brave. Say what you want to say. Let the words fall out. Honestly, I want to see you be brave with what you want to say and let the words fall out. And honestly, I want to see you be brave. And since your history of silence won't do you any good, did you think it would? Let your words be anything but empty. Why don't you tell them the truth? And so I want to say to you, I'm so grateful to be here today. I end on that note, hoping that you really took something of value with you. Again, my name is Gina Tabrizi, T-A-B-R-I-Z-Y, licensed marriage and family therapist of 33 very proud years. I am the owner and co-founder of Harmony Heals, H-E-A-L-S, Dot com. That's the website. You can find me on Facebook. I have my own show. I guess it's like a podcast. It's a live show every Wednesday night on Ask Gina at 6 p.m. California, so Pacific Standard Time. Look me up there, Ask Gina on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I'm either Ask Gina or my name, Gina Tabrizi. And all the videos and talks I've ever done are on YouTube under Harmony Heels or Gina Tabrizi. So I thank you all so much for your time. I wish you the very best, and I hope to see you again soon. You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.